one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 16th of October. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. So, Emily, what's the latest on the U.S. campaign trail? Yeah, well, just last night we had dueling town halls. So there was going to be a debate and then Trump tested positive for COVID-19. And so the debate commission said, well, let's do this virtually. The Trump campaign said no. So there was a Biden town hall by ABC, and then NBC decided that that it too would have a town hall for Trump because this is America and we love a show. So I watched the Biden town hall last night, which was fine and stood in stark contrast to the Trump town hall in which he refused to disavow QAnon, the conspiracy theory that we discussed just last week with Sarah on this very podcast. And what's your what's your moment of the week being? I'm going to take a break from the United States for my moment of the week and talk about India, which I don't think we do enough on this on this pod. Tanishq, which is this, this Indian jewelry company, had an ad for a new line. The line means unity and the ad sort of, it, it featured an interfaith couple. They have since withdrawn the advertisement because there was so much backlash on social media. You know, the ad depicted a baby shower that was for a Hindu bride by her Muslim in-laws and opponents of the advertisement said that it promoted, quote unquote, love jihad. The reason I think that this is important is that, you know, obviously the sort of Hindu nationalism that's uh, taking hold is, is to put it too lightly, but, but but is really embraced by the some of the most powerful people in India. I think this story got a lot of attention earlier in the year when there were the protests at various universities and then there were the violent riots in Delhi. And I just think it's important to note that this is still, the sentiment is still very much going on and and people are mad enough, despite the fact that interfaith marriages are extremely rare in India, intercaste and interfaith marriages, people still felt so threatened by this, right? That they would go and, 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 and were able to force the ad to be withdrawn. Jeremy, what is your moment of the week? My moment of the week was French President Emmanuel Macron's address to the country on Wednesday evening in which he unveiled new sort of quasi-lockdown measures for Paris and eight other metropolitan areas in France. There's now a curfew from 9pm. Weddings are now banned in public spaces. There are new restrictions on gathering in public. I mean, there's clearly a great deal of, of alarm in France at the moment at the, at the rising numbers of 
COVID-19 infections there. The French Prime Minister had previously announced that the rate per 100,000 of population had risen from about just over 100 to almost 200. And it just, I think it it speaks to the, the sense that has really accelerated in the last few days that Europe is now very much in the grip of a second wave. France, Spain, the Czech Republic particularly heavily hit. Here in Berlin, the numbers are rising quite fast. Germany's not as badly hit as some other countries, but certainly there are pockets of high infections, including here in the capital. The UK too has has adopted new new lockdown measures. So I think just Macron's speech as a symbol of the fact that we're in for what could be quite a quite a grim autumn and winter here in Europe, and possibly uh, from what I understand in the US too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we're on like a third peak right now, although it feels like we never really got out of the, got out of the first. Are there, are there new restrictions in Washington at the moment? No, at least not that I am aware of. Uh, I have to say in DC, people are pretty good about about wearing masks and trying to socially distance. But there are, the scary thing now is that there are parts of the country, particularly out West and the Midwest that are that are being hit now that really hadn't seen a bad number of infections, I guess, for, for want of a better way of putting that, right. that are now going to have have to deal with that. In, in, in Europe too, the pattern is slightly different from the first from the first wave. Uh, it's notable that Italy, which was initially the, the first European country to have a severe outbreak of COVID-19, has been relatively mildly hit in the last few months and weeks. I obviously hope that remains the case. Whereas other countries like the Czech Republic, which which got off lightly before, are now very heavily affected. So there's, it, it's not following the same pattern as the, the, first, the first one did. Anyway, we'll be keeping an eye on that. But for now, would you like to introduce our guest this week? I would love to introduce our guest this week. We are very excited because we have with us this week, Stephen Wertheim. He is the Deputy Director of Research and Policy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and he's the author of the new book, Tomorrow the World. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure. So I guess for those of our listeners who are not familiar with your work, to start out, your, I guess, overarching thesis or purpose of your work is to make people rethink America's role in the world, and particularly this idea that America is a force for good that needs to be carried out through military means. Is that an accurate summary of of the work that you do? That sounds fair to me. I'm trained uh, professionally as a historian. So my view is informed by a certain reading of American history. And so, yes, uh, you know, I think moving forward in the 21st century, the United States uh, will be safer and better off if it pulls back with its military force. And I apply that, you know, pretty much around the globe, even though others, you know, would, would maybe favor that for the Middle East, but not elsewhere. The other dimension I think is relevant is that I I tend to think more than other people in this town where you and I are, Emily, uh, albeit in different locations, of course, uh, Yes. the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) I think that American politics matters a lot for foreign policy. And it's something that the foreign policy making class in Washington often forgets. They, They have a particularly cloistered expert community. But I think recent events, including the rise of Donald Trump to be president, ought to clue us into the fact that foreign policy is is part of politics. So there's a lot to unpack in all of that. To start out, so you have this op-ed in the New York Times, and you know it was making the rounds on Twitter. And, and one of the responses that I saw to it was this idea of, well, if America retreats, what steps into the void, right? Is it is it Putin's Russia? Is it Xi's China? Like, it's not like America's going to go away, and then we're all going to hold hands and have this better, more peaceful future and, you know, power adores a vacuum and so on and so forth. What is your response to that? 
It's a fair question, but another way of putting it, there might be a vacuum, but there might also be freedom. There might also be people around the world judging threats for themselves, taking responsibility themselves to decide to build up their defenses or not. So any idea that, you know, Russia, Putin will step into the void, this is a, a country that is not a good actor in the world by any stretch, but has the size of GDP of roughly Spain. You know, we don't talk about Spain potentially dominating Europe. Now, China is a different story, and that's more of a concern. But, you know, even China, which is rising and deserves to be carefully watched, has not engaged in a record of territorial conquest. Uh, unfortunately, I have to say, compared to the United States, if you look at the past couple decades. So I think we have to take the vacuum argument seriously, but it's not a knockdown argument whatsoever. And it's certainly on me and, and uh, people like me to answer specifically, you know, how could a U.S. drawdown in various regions redound to the benefit of the United States and the benefit of those regions. But, you know, I, I think there's a troubling ideology at work with the notion of a vacuum. And well, if the U.S. doesn't dominate, you know, the Middle East or Europe, then she will or Putin will. You know, the world is not just composed of wards who can't take action for themselves and counterbalance threats that, frankly, matter more to them than to the United States. If you're Germany, you're threatened more potentially by Russian aggression than the United States would be. On that, Stephen, I think a lot of people listening to this will absolutely recognise the argument about the dangers and the, the destruction that can be caused and has been caused by US military and wider geopolitical overreach in, in the past decades. The, the argument for that is fairly well established. The question, though, that, I, that I'd like to kind of explore more is what you think could step into that vacuum other than individual countries working on their own. I mean, do you envisage under a sort of a US president that, in your view, would be more re realistic about its role in the world and more sort of multilateralist. Do you envisage a, a kind of a, a US-based alliance system where individual countries, you know, whether we're talking about Germany or Japan or South Korea or Taiwan or whatever, to simply taking responsibility on their own individually? Or is this something where, you know, you, you, you look to something like the UN or organizations like NATO or... I don't know, there's, there's talk of a sort of new Indo-Pacific alliance to counterbalance China. Is, is the answer to this in alliances or is it or is it in simply individual countries making individual choices about, about how they want to replace the U.S. security umbrella? I think it's both. It depends on, you know, the, the region and the countries involved. I think with respect to Europe, for example, I would very much like to see the Europeans develop a more independent and robust security architecture. It's something that I think is being discussed in many European capitals, given the events of the last four plus years. And French President Macron has spoken intriguingly about that possibility. So there could be a continuation of NATO or an EU arrangement that helps to replace the US security umbrella. I think in the Indo-Pacific, it's, it's a bit different, but I am actually heartened by the way that I think China has overreached, especially in its use of economic coercion, and um, countries in the region are taking notice of that. They have different options for how they might deal with the challenge of uh, rising Chinese power. And 
the negative conduct that, that has come with that. But one thing I think is pretty clear from the historical record, if the United States wants to put itself out front in all these places, then that does not provide an incentive for U.S. allies and partners to take responsibility themselves. I think, you know, basically all presidents have known this since the very beginning of, let's say, NATO, going back to President Eisenhower. In that respect, uh, President Trump's, some of his concerns are within the mainstream of American foreign policymaking. But, you know, he's completely unable to grasp the, the point that by actually increasing U.S. security commitments on his watch and increasing U.S. defense spending, he's not providing any framework, any incentive for uh, other actors in other regions to find their own balance of power. Do you envisage the U.S. then in playing a sort of convening role in bringing other countries together or encouraging countries to develop their own answers to their security needs? I'm interested in kind of what this retrenchment would look like in that sense. I mean, would I, I take the point about pulling back the U.S.'s sort of military role internationally? But would you would you see that being substituted by a more diplomatic or soft sort of power, or would it really be a case of actually just pulling back to incentivize others to get on with it entirely, sort of irrespective or without regard to to what Washington thinks or wants to happen? No, I'm for more robust American engagement in the world. I, you know, I think on issues like climate change, the United States has done way too little mm. uh, since experts saw the problem coming in the 1990s. And instead, the American national security establishment decided to invest billions upon billions in endless war and in preparation for war. And we still can't even get uh, two parties in the United States that acknowledge that climate change is a man-made problem and demands bold action. So I think there's a conventional wisdom that you know, diplomacy is is nothing without force behind it. And I'm not for a tiny U.S. military. We're talking about a military right now that more money is lavished upon it than the next 10 potential competitors combined. So there's plenty of room to adjust American grand strategy, spend less on the military, do less with the U.S. military, and do more on the things that really matter to the American people. You know, cooperation on pandemics is another issue as well. So there are these transnational and planetary challenges that directly implicate the well-being of Americans and the planet. I think that demands more engagement by the United States, both at home and abroad. And I like the, the word you use, convening. I think that the United States can actually be more influential and be more of a peacemaker if it uses its diplomacy without always saying that force is the next step in the equation. It's about disentangling the notion of military retrenchment from outright isolationism, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would even go further. I'd, I think isolationism has never really existed in the United States, and we can talk about the history of that. But this is one of the main misconceptions you know, people have, that the argument that I'm making is an argument for isolationism, it's sort of on its face ridiculous because I'm for robust economic engagement in the world and bolder action against the challenges that really face America and the world in the 21st century. You know, let's go back to the uh, to the roots, if we can. When people make the argument about American engagement in the world, oftentimes one encounters people who go back to 
World War II and, and present this as a choice between a Lindbergh-esque America first with its, frankly, nativist and anti-Semitic roots and the post-World War II era in which the U.S. is the world's policeman. Is that where the this notion of the U.S. is like the strongest military power the world starts? Or do you think that it was later on during the Cold War? Like, where do you think this conception that the U.S. has of itself now, where does that begin? So this is the question I set out to answer when I realized that scholars hadn't really squarely asked the question. We know that the founders of the United States didn't envision the United States as the militarily dominant active superpower across the globe. And we know in our own time that that's the consensus view. So, you know, a decision had to be made at some point. And in the book, I trace that decision to the early years of World War II, to the moment you mentioned when the America Firsters and interventionists are debating whether to get involved in the war. And what I found, you know, which is upsetting to me, and that's kind of what made me interested in the in the topic, is that First of all, there was really no isolationist position. You know, even the America First position held that the entire Western Hemisphere should be defended by force by the United States. And many, it was a diverse coalition. So we can go into that. And the interventionists were not just, um, you know, planning to get the United States uh, into World War II, uh, something with I, which I have... Uh, uh, infinite sympathy, but they were looking ahead past the war and deciding that the United States should be the dominant military power across the globe in something like perpetuity. And so I think it makes sense that the United States has this consensus around its globe spanning dominance today, in part because that decision was bound up with the best thing we've done as a country, right? Victory in World War II. Who's against that? Not me. And so I think that's part of we, we have to go back to this history to understand, um, you know, that the, there was a tragic nature to it, even in the, the greatest triumph. And in the 21st century, when totalitarian conquerors are no longer with us, and we can argue about China and whether it will go in that direction, and that's an important argument. But, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we're in a very different situation. And essentially, the use of military force around the world was seen originally by many of the people who made this decision as a kind of tragic necessity to keep the world open, to preserve world order and liberal intercourse in a world that might otherwise be dominated by totalitarian powers. But my concern is that in our own time, military dominance has become something like an end unto itself and that the profligate commitment and use of force by the United States is actually doing a lot to obstruct freedom around the world and the kinds of flows of ideas, of people, of commerce that it was originally intended to secure. I'd like to go back to this point about how we misunderstand the America Firsters then. And also, if, I mean, if you could speak about why people misunderstand what America First is now, right? Because as you mentioned earlier, although Trump tapped into this rhetoric during the 2016 campaign, and although he's still billing himself as a person who is ending war, that's not actually happening, right? If you look at our military spending and military commitments around the world. So why do we buy the narrative when the narrative is not actually what's happening? Yes. And it's been so damaging that Trump has been misinterpreted since he started running for president, the most recent time in 2015, as an isolationist, when he's been promising to 
make American dominance unquestioned and beef up the military and punish Iran and so forth. And he's done that in office. So we've really dropped the ball in understanding who he is and, and forging an oppositional politics. And why has this happened? It's happened because I think many commentators have been hoisted on their own ideological petard. So for most of American history, not only did nobody describe themselves as an isolationist, but that term wasn't even used as an epithet. Just no Americans thought it was relevant, essentially, to America's role in the world or thought that somebody in the United States stood for isolationism because clearly they were for many forms of engagement, just skeptical of military entanglement. So that changed in the 1930s when the, the ism, the term isolationism, came into widespread usage and its usage intensified uh, in the 1940s. And it intensifies, you know, not because of the people who it named, uh, who, as I mentioned, were, you know, for dominance militarily of an entire hemisphere of the world. You know, if that's isolationism, let's ask Central Americans whether that's isolationism. The reason it came into usage is that it performed valuable ideological work for the people who wanted to make American military dominance sound like it was part of a venerable American tradition. So there's a tradition of being against power politics in the United States that was extremely powerful. And post-war planners worried, you know, would the American people not be willing to shoulder the burden of global leadership, given that it would be expensive and in many ways contrary to, 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 to American tradition? And by being able to oppose internationalism to this new term, isolationism, they were able to make it sound like armed dominance in the world was the epitome of internationalism, that internationalism was both dominating power politics and transcending power politics, one and the same. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Can I just ask on the on the point about the origins of this thinking in the in the aftermath of the Second World War? I take a point about the, that that having emerged previously to the end of the Second World War. Do you think it's acceptable from a progressive point of view, a pro democratic, pro liberal democracy point of view, for a power other than the U.S., specifically an autocratic or an, or in some other way totalitarian power, to have more military might than the U.S. as a point of principle? Or is that, is that an irrelevant or is that an unhelpful comparison? Because I guess that applies also to China today as, as well as it, as it did to the Soviet Union in the late 40s, 50s and onwards. It's so far from the situation we have today when, as I mentioned, more money goes into the U.S. military than goes into the top 10 militaries after the United States combined. So Russia and China are in that mix, as are eight other countries, some yeah. of them allies and partners of of the United States. So it's not a major risk is what you're saying. It is not on the horizon. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, there are, there isn't uh, you know, uh, possibilities of mischief by China that we have to deal with and that's significant. You know, to to your point, I mean, I actually have a lot of sympathy for the architects of US global dominance in the mid 20th century. I think we can learn a lot from them and I think I admire them to to a certain degree and in the book even as I think it's important to understand the flaws that 
some of them foresaw and the problems that have been bequeathed to us today. But, you know, do I have a problem with the United States being the number one military power as of 1945 or, you know, compared to the Soviet Union? Of course not. I don't. What I have a problem with is the notion that, you know, the United States must necessarily for all time have overweening military power in the world. So we've been talking a lot about the past, and I'd like to bring us more firmly into the present. Foreign policy has not taken center stage in this presidential election. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? I mean, I kind of never take center stage. But there, I think in years past, it has gotten more attention than it has this time. Like last night, I was watching the Biden town hall, as I mentioned, and there was one man who asked, well, actually, he said that, that peace is breaking out all over the world, which I just don't agree with, but I don't want to slander Mark, <laughs> the town hall guest on our podcast. I, I guess why the limited attention to foreign policy this cycle, G- given how important the president is to foreign policy specifically, given the state of the world with climate change and the pandemic, which is going to take international cooperation and all of these military adventures that the US is still entangled in, why does it get so little of our of our time? Oh boy. Well, it's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a continuation of a pattern where the rest of the world matters less to uh, the United States and the American people than the United States matters to the world. And so we tend to have a particularly shallow foreign policy debate when it comes to the general election. It does surprise me a bit that this time it's so off the table. I mean, I think people are not really connecting the pandemic with America's role in the world, which is lamentable. And even the issue of relations with China, which are crucial on the pandemic itself. I mean, you have the Trump administration blaming China, calling it the China virus. Even that issue has not gotten much attention in this election. So there's something to explain there. I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure why it is, except that there aren't going to be many debates. The one debate that we had was a mess and nothing was discussed, really. Uh, There was a bit of foreign policy discussion in the vice presidential debate. But, you know, another reason might be that Trump doesn't has a kind of mangled message on foreign policy to run on. And Biden is kind of it's unclear. You would think that it would be a big strength for him, given his profile on foreign policy. But he was also vulnerable on the issue in the Democratic primary where there was a more lively foreign policy debate centered around how the United States could end endless war more than how the United States could stand up to adversaries. Mm -hmm. And so Biden, kind of like Hillary Clinton in the 2016 primary, for all his experience, it it actually turned out to be something of a liability in those debates. Well, so this is the next thing that I wanted to ask you, which is, I mean, there are a bunch of areas in which there is daylight between the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party and Biden. But I would argue that one of the greatest areas is, in fact, do uh, argue this in my profile on Joe Biden, now up on newstatesman.com, that one of the greatest areas is foreign policy. So in the Democratic Party, there is this momentum, right, to rethink American foreign policy, to end endless war, to rethink how we engage with the rest of the world. But that is not necessarily represented by the Democratic Party leadership, which is still in a more, let's say, traditional place. Biden, I would say, is in that latter camp. Part of the reason that it gained this momentum under the Trump administration is the way that he articulates things is so vulgar. 
right? That you're like, oh, wait, all of our arms deals with Saudi, that's really about money. And oh, wait, our relationship with this ally is actually based on this lie. What happens to that momentum under President Biden? That's the question. You know, it might be more relevant to think about the Obama-Biden administration and what happened to the left critique than it would be to, to Trump. Now, under Obama, partly because Obama ran on his genuine opposition to the Iraq war in 2008. And I think that's the reason, I think that was a difference maker in him defeating Hillary Clinton for the nomination in 2008. There wasn't much open progressive criticism of the Obama administration's foreign policy. So, you know, the question is, if we have a Biden-Harris administration, will we see a reversion to, you know, progressives basically letting, letting the president dictate the terms of the debate or not. And I'm optimistic, actually. I think that Biden has almost presented himself toward progressives as, you know, not the defining element of the Democratic Party of the future or even the present, but as a as a broker. And so I'm hopeful that he will at least listen to what progressives have to say. But it's on progressives, it's on the left to sustain the significant intellectual work and political work that's taken place, as you mentioned, over the past four years. So there's going to have to be a, an adjustment on that score. And I think, you know, issues like climate change, which absolutely implicate U.S. relations with China, they implicate America's role in the world. Generally, the U.S. military is the institution that emits the most greenhouse gases into the world of any institution on Earth. So, that has to be addressed just by virtue of the problem. And Democratic voters, not just the, the left of the party, recognize climate change as the number one national security threat today. It's significantly outranks in, in polls all other challenges, including the challenges of Russia and China. A quick final question for you both, actually. We've, we've talked about Biden a bit. What do you think a second Trump term would mean for foreign policy? Any top line thoughts on that? Well, that's a pleasant thought. I would be very worried about particularly U.S. relations with Iran and the possibility yeah. of a you know war starting. There's only so long this maximum pressure campaign, which is ever ever tightening, can be sustained. So, I think that would be potentially quite devastating. And then relations with China, I'm concerned either way, but for different reasons. You know, there's always the kind of deal maker mode that, that Trump can turn himself into in the pursuit of trade, which I think is what he really cares about. But the fact of the matter is, particularly his advisors like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have ramped up a, a Cold War posture towards China over the past year, over the past several years. And I, I'd be extremely concerned. I, I think, you know, being anti-China is becoming a defining feature of being a Republican sad to say, although there are significant tensions in the Republican coalition on this point. So I, I, you know, I'd be very concerned about those aspects. And we have to assume that the next four years would be pretty much like the previous four years, only in different circumstances. Perhaps the president will finally make good on his stated intention to end the war in Afghanistan. That is possible. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether he does anything more than browbeat U.S. allies 
and encourage them to spend more. But I, given who he's appointed over four years, he's the president, he's had the choice. I can't say I'm terribly optimistic. Yeah, I would agree that the situation with Iran is will be increasingly dangerous. I think we talked about we did talk about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And, you know, the, the threat is not necessarily a declaration of or an intention to go to war, but the likelihood that the US could stumble into war with Iran. I think that if he's reelected, he starts taking its stance toward China, like he's been taking toward Iran, right? Like unilaterally applying sanctions, trying to force Xi to some negotiating table that the end goal of which is not clear, blaming China for everything, further ceding ground in the multilateral space to China in the process. I also think that with respect to US allies, like there has been a sense, at least from diplomats I've spoken to, that we can just hang on through these four years, right? Like we can just muddle through for these four years and then we will have our relationship with the US back and it'll be a little different, but it will be back. You can't muddle through eight years, right? You just can't. And so I think that particularly in the US-Europe relationship, I worry about how not just unproductive, but antagonistic it could become should we have four more years of this. Yeah, I share that concern. And and that's maybe the most important question, not you know who will Trump be in the next four years? Who's going to be Trump? What will everybody else do? Mm-hmm. What will US partners and allies do? What will US adversaries do? And what will Democrats and other opponents of Trump in the United States, how will they react to the fact that Trump will, would not be in that scenario a four-year president who could be imagined as an aberration, but he, he'd be an eight-year eight president? Right. Almost a decade of, uh, of Trumpism and, and a sign that this is the road down which the US is, has committed to, to go. On that cheery note, we are now going to move into a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Our question this week is, in which way were the 1990s a time of global pressure to action for the United States? How did the breakup of the Soviet Union impact the global engagement of the United States? Stephen, as our as our guest, we will let you take the first, uh, first crack at that. One might have thought that the United States would take the opportunity of the collapse of the Soviet Union to declare something of a victory and live at peace in the world and pull back you know, significantly with its armed forces. And just quite the contrary happened. The United States not only didn't really pull back, it extended its aims. It thought it was in the end of history. It imagined a world heading inexorably with maybe the U.S. lobbing a cruise missile here and there toward liberal democracy. And the record now shows it's been three decades. The United States has used force far more frequently after the collapse of the Soviet Union than it did even during the Cold War. That's just a startling fact to me. So, you know, how do we explain that decision? It was a non-decision, first of all. It seemed obvious to American policymakers the United States should continue in its military dominance. And I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier, that there had been these deep lessons learned in the 20th century that the United States, you know, was supposedly isolationist, that that had somehow caused world wars. And the antidote to isolationism was global dominance. And that's really the only way the United States could relate to the world. I would just note that, and I don't know if you had this experience growing up, Stephen, but like in grade school, I was always taught that the U.S. won the Cold War, right? The U.S. won the Cold War, the U.S. defeated the Soviet Union. And when I went to college and grad school and studied Russia and the the region, like when you're in grad school and you have to write your little essays about why the Soviet Union dissolved, 
the choices that you're given to argue are like internal economic pressure, desire from the other states for independence, like a broken ideology. Reagan was not even a given topic, right? And I think that there was this understanding in the US that like, we won, we beat them and we can go and and continue to do that when actually that's not what happened. And so you can't do that. I guess you could say we won, but we lost less. It was less costly Mm -hmm. and less destructive than it was for the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union collapsed for reasons that you know, maybe in a, is a part of the story uh, structurally is the Cold War competition and the way the Soviet Union saw itself in the world and therefore some of the pressures created when it wasn't able to outcompete the West economically. But, you know, that's only part of the story. And certainly the story the United States tells itself about its relations with the rest of the world always tends to exaggerate the agency of the United States. Can I just ask about Bosnia and Kosovo, things were on the 1990s, because it seem, it seems to me, and tell me if you disagree with this, Stephen, but that the US, in inverted commas, winning the Cold War obviously strongly affected the country's propensity to military interventions in the, in the subsequent decades. But the fact that in both Bosnia and Kosovo, you had clear examples of Europeans in this case, not stepping up to prevent war crimes, genocide, and so forth, and it falling to the US to actually lead the action that, that was required there, that that actually, along with the, the perceived victory in the Cold War, also greatly strengthened the interventionist or the militarily interventionist mood in Washington in then the subsequent decade. You know, the, the examples of Bosnia and Kosovo were invoked, for example, in the run-up to the Iraq War. Do you think those those played a role? Or, or were, they, were they even misinterpreted, do you think, by the Washington policy establishment? I fully agree with you. I think there was a significant shift over the course of the 1990s. You know, coming out of the Cold War, there was some skepticism about, you know, how effectively the United States could use force. The war in Vietnam continued to Mm. register strongly for American policymakers as for Americans more generally. And some of the earlier, some of the experiences in the 1990s, including experience in Bosnia, Kosovo, and what was you know, understood to be the failure to act in Rwanda in the horrific genocide of 1994, these created a new hawkish consensus. And so it's, it's only in the late 90s that you know, both what you might call liberal interventionism or you know, humanitarian interventionism on the one hand and neoconservatism firmly ascend in the United States, both linked by a confidence in the use of force and a kind of blithe attitude to well, what happens you know, in the longer term once you stop a, an atrocity or once you intervene in a country to try and make it a democracy. So this is actually something I've, ri- I've written about in a journal article called A Solution from Hell. I will, I, will, I will look that up. Although with the case of Bosnia and Kosovo, the long-term outcome has been broadly good. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think Bosnia in in particular, but there were conditions there that that were quite different from, you know, say in the Middle East or elsewhere in the world, including the fact that, you know, there an intervention could be undertaken legally from an international point of view and in defense of of an internationally accepted state. And, you know, it gets a lot more difficult when one is trying to violate sovereignty and potentially violate international law to intervene in, in some cases where, you know, parties on the ground don't even want an outside force. 
Interesting. I'd like to just say, say thanks very much for, for, for the nuanced conversation about, about American foreign policy. I think that, as you pointed out, very often these subjects get reduced to very simplistic categories, isolationism, liberal interventionism being, being, being among them. It's good to have a conversation that, that tells a more nuanced and complicated story. So, so that, that's great. I'd encourage readers who are interested in this to read Stephen's excellent piece for the New Statesman a couple of weeks ago, which is on our website, and I will put it on the the web page for this podcast, which you'll be able to find at the usual place, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. Very interesting take by Stephen on Trump and Biden and what Americans actually want from their foreign policy, which leaves us just with our final segment, which is to look ahead to the next seven days and flag up what we're going to be looking out for. Stephen, as you're a guest, do you want to, do you want to go first and let us know what, what you'll be paying attention to in the next week? Oh, I'll go first, but I'll be boring. I will be paying attention to the third or second, but in any case, final presidential debate, which is scheduled for Thursday and presumably will happen. Lord knows I I don't want to watch it on some deep level, but I also can't look away. And uh, as we discussed, I'll be looking for any discussion of of foreign policy. And if we don't get it, this will be the first time, at least in my living memory, that foreign policy will never really be broached in a round of presidential debates. There used to be an entire foreign policy debate of the three. And I think the last one was held in, in 2012. And, you know, from a political perspective, it's really Trump's last chance to show the country a different face. We'll see whether some of the criticism which came from Republicans from his first debate performance, his food fight performance, will uh, get through to him. So it's a bit of a signal as to whether all the inhibitions are gone at this point. Yeah. And for listeners who either don't want to watch it themselves or will be watching it and would like a a sane and rational accompaniment to that spectacle, um, Emily will be live blogging it for us on the New Statesman website and covering the fallout as well. So pay attention to that. Emily, I'm sure you're particularly looking forward to that experience. It's going to be life affirming in all sorts of ways. But is there anything else you're looking at during the next week? Well, I'll continue to be watching, and I think I said this last week, so apologies, but I'll be watching the early voting numbers continue to climb, but we'll also be looking at voter suppression, both subtle and overt, that continues to to come out in, in, the, in the weeks before the election. I mean, you're already seeing these extreme lines on waiting for the polls. So that, that is what I will be watching, how difficult it remains to be to vote in America. Jeremy, what will you be looking out for next week? Well, in the next week, so tomorrow as we record this, I will be looking out uh, for the results of the New Zealand general election. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, the very popular Labour Prime Minister, is expected to win a landslide, particularly in light of her strong handling of the coronavirus pandemic. We did actually have a You Ask Us on this. So so very briefly, New Zealand has managed to limit the number of deaths from coronavirus to just 25, partly because it's a remote country that can close its borders very easily. But also Arden is credited with that outcome for moving very fast to impose a very severe lockdown. There's an article this week in the Lancet Medical Journal, which says that, that, that the lockdown in New Zealand was unprecedented in its rapidity and severity. And she's basically credited with winning public buy-in for that by communicating very compassionately, very clearly. She hosted Facebook Live sessions from her own home to sort of show New Zealanders that this was important and that it applied to everyone. And on the back of that, her re-election, which it's hard to believe now, given how popular she is, but was not a certainty about a year ago. 
looked entirely possible she'd be a one-term prime minister. And it's made that, that re-election now pretty much a certainty. But big domestic challenges still in New Zealand. She hasn't defeated issues like uh, housing unaffordability, child poverty that she she said were her signature priorities when she took office in 2017. So lots still to do, but we can we can safely say that she'll win the election. The result might be a Labour government, the first one-party government since New Zealand moved to proportional representation in 1996, or she might form a coalition with the Greens. So I will be looking out for that. And subscribers to our World Review newsletter, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review, will be able to read this uh, today as we record this, uh, my wider thoughts on the New Zealand election and, and, and the country's future and Arden's own role in, in, in the country and the world. So with that, I'd like to say a very big thank you to Stephen for joining us and remind listeners that you can read his article for the New Statesman on the webpage for this podcast and buy his book in all good bookshops. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. If you have enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. And just a final reminder that you can follow all of our US election coverage. You can check in with our results forecast, which is updated daily, our polling overview, and all of our coverage from the magazine and from online and from our data team at our US election hub, newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. So check that out as we come into the final stretch of the election campaign. Yeah, and you can follow our international coverage more broadly at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.